0: grab your Bible and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's part two of a message that I started last week. We will have a part three uh, because of the incredible weight and importance of uh, that which Paul mentions. It's the essence of the gospel. So we're going to read verses 9, 10, and 11, chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, and then we will pray, and uh, then after that, you can be seated, and we'll jump in. We have a lot to cover, and uh, so I'm, I'm excited about sharing with you some uh, thoughts today. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, for God has not destined us, believers in Christ, you remember that from last week, for wrath, for God's wrath but what has He destined us for, for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This will be the focus, verse 10 of our message today, who died for us. Salvation made possible through Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, now remember that is speaking of physically awake, living, or that we have died, Christians who have died, here's the promise, we will live with Him eternal life. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we cry out to You in gratefulness, in thanksgiving for the great God that You are. We thank You that You have superintended everything that is around us, and not only in our little slice of life here in Oklahoma City, in Oklahoma, but in our country and in our world. Father, we are commanded to pray for our leaders, and so we do that today. We pray for our President, President Trump. We pray for the President-elect Joe Biden, we pray that you would now, in the days ahead, superintend everything, as you always do. We have great confidence in who you are, and so we thank you that you are going to be the one to guide us through everything that is going to happen. We praise you and thank you now that we can study the thing that is going to give us hope. That's what Paul wanted for these believers, these immature believers at Thessalonica, he wanted them to receive great hope and encouragement. And so that comes through your word. And that's what we want to study today. Oh, God, I cry out to you for clarity as we talk about some very weighty things, theological things, that we might explain them so that from the youngest to the oldest, we might not just understand with the mind, but embrace with the heart and live out with our life. Thank you, Father, because we have Again, the utmost confidence in You and Your Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of Your Word and Your Holy Spirit. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Joseph Robinette Biden, Jr. is the president-elect set to become the 46th president of the United States. To say that there are strong emotions and reactions on either side would to be an understatement. There are many people in our land who see this as a bright day of new hope. I'll quote from the New York Times that this victory for Joe Biden was, quote, snatching our republic from the jaws of hostility, deadly incompetence, and autocracy. I'm quoting the New York Times. Don't take that as a, an agreement with that statement. But then others see it in another way, as a journey into a dark night in which... In the words of Michelle Bachman, any of you know that name, former senator from Minnesota, Biden will install a Marxist government within the first 100 days of his presidency. You may not agree with either sentiment. Those are kind of the polar opposites, aren't they? You may be somewhere in between. But one of the things we can say, now remember I've, I've told you before that we need to look beyond, I said it a minute ago, our little slice of time right here, right now in this church and in your family, and then broaden that out to our nation. Don't be myopic. Don't just be tunnel-visioned and see only our nation. We have to see the whole world and all of the things that are going on in the world. And all of us would agree that we are living in desperate, difficult times. Paul said this almost 2,000 years ago. He said, realize this. He's talking to Timothy, who was the pastor of a church at a place called Ephesus. Ephesus. And so he was giving him pastoral counseling and he said this, and and, and certainly he wanted this to be relayed to the people in Timothy's congregation. He said, realize something, that in the last days, let me stop there, when are the last days? Now, we've been in the last days for almost 2,000 years since Christ ascended and before He comes back. These are the last days, but are we getting closer to the last of the last days? Well, here's what He said, realize that in the last days, difficult times will come. And for those of us who hold a biblical worldview, now I want to make a, a, a statement here and then I'm going to come back so that you'll, I hope, understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview. There may be a difference. We see the real issues. Now, we might read a verse like this and think that we're talking only about politics and economy and agendas that certain political parties might have, but Paul said there are issues underneath these things that are always there. It doesn't matter who is in control politically. And he goes on to talk about these issues. Men will be lovers of self. The real issue is that we love God. We know that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but people are going to be lovers in themselves, lovers of money. These are the explanation that Paul is giving about the difficult days. Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. Whoa! What's that doing in there, students, children? Paul was an equal opportunity pastor. He spoke to everybody in the church, young and old, okay? ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous. Wow, the list goes on. Reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers in God, of God. Now, here's why I made a distinction between having a biblical worldview and a so-called Christian worldview. There are many Christians that this I I use the word with quotes, so-called Christians, not true believers, but they fill churches throughout the land and throughout the world. And here's how Paul describes them. They hold to all of these people that are irreconcilable and disobedient to parents and all the rest of that, they hold to a form of godliness. There is this outward shell of conformity to certain kinds of goodness although they have denied its power. What power? The power unto salvation. And then watch what he says. Evil men, imposters, will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's a picture of the difficult times that we're in. So as believers, we need to see that. We need to understand what's going on, but we also need to see God's solutions the real and lasting sal, uh, salvation kinds of solutions. Now, I want you to look on your worship guide. We're going to follow this outline and continue before we get to verse 10 because we have to go back, and in light of some of the issues, you know, I, I wondered along about uh, Friday or Saturday, should I should I bail on the sermon that I had prepared this last week, or should, should, should I... Preach something else in light of the cultural realities, and I thought, no, because the Bible is going to give us everything that we need for life and godliness. Amen. And so I just need to continue on as we have planned because God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. Now, hear what, please hear what I'm about to say. God is faithful, right? Because God is sovereign. Sovereign just means He's in control, that He is in charge. He's large and in charge. In everything that is happening in our world, and you can can narrow that down into your family and into your life and to your workplace and to your church, in everything that is happening, students remember this, whatever is happening in your lives, God has a plan, and Jesus is still on the throne. And He uses everyone. We've talked about this some time ago. God uses everyone, even the devil. And I'm not likening either person that I prayed for a minute ago as being the devil. I'm talking about the devil. God even uses the devil. Remember the book of Job? In working out his plan. Do you know what God says about what just went on and what will go on in the days ahead unless the Lord comes back? And that's a distinct possibility. Several things have to happen. But here is the biblical reality it is He, that's capital H, that's God, who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings presidents, prime ministers, leaders, pastor, He he removes kings and He establishes kings. But God is the judge, He puts down one, and He exalts another. I think in these days that I've heard so much fear from Christians about the future, I really believe, based on what I just said, that to a large degree, a lot of Christians, and sometimes we fall into this, I'm not condemning, we have sovereignty amnesia. We really do forget that God is in control of everything, and that's not just a passive kind of, well, I may just work some things out. No, that's an active control. Let me say this, I got this from a former pastor and I'm reminded of it, no… he just said, and I'm going to add some words, no political party, no president, no king, no government system has the Lion of Judah by the tail. Joshua encountered an angel when he was getting ready to go and fight the battle of Jericho. That was an impossible task. The angel came to him and he said, uh, are you on our side or their side? Are you for us or are you for them? And basically, you know what he answered, the angel? You can look it up. He said, no. Joshua, you need to get your, your, your vision right. I am the captain of the Lord of hosts. I'm for God. I'm on God's side. And that's not just some little escape from what is happening now. Let me tell you this, we support and we pray for any man who is the President of the United States. You've got to. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with all of his agenda, which there are many items with which I don't, and I'm sure that you don't agree, and we speak to those things as they come to us in God's Word, right? We are in spiritual warfare. What's spiritual warfare? We wrestle not against humans, flesh and blood. We are wrestling against the principalities and powers, and we will continue to do so until the end. In fact, the Bible says, and it says it right here in this study we've been going through about the second coming of Christ found in 1 Thessalonians and then continuing as we go to 2 Thessalonians, it's going to intensify. So how can we be encouraged? Again, if you look at verse 11, that's what Paul's intent. Today, I hope, is an encouragement. Next week and the week after, the weeks ahead, I hope that we are encouraged. In fact, uh, he, he just says several things. I wrote them out in the next several verses. Let me just tell you what the outcome of all of this that we've been talking about. He says, okay, now that I've told you this, and we're going to talk about our identity in Christ today, it's going to be really just some neat stuff growing out of the Bible. But he says, in light of that, admonish the undisciplined. Oh, first of all, respect your leaders. Admonish the the undisciplined. He says, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. It's in the church, and you're going to see it's outside the church. Be patient with all of them. Seek to do good one to another and to everyone. Rejoice. When we win, always. You know, there are much higher stakes than this, but last week, and this will tell you personally where I land. You don't have to agree with it, but I felt like I was watching my college football team. The Arkansas Razorbacks. Man, I've watched them so many times. They do great through the half, the first, second quarter. And then all of a sudden, the third quarter comes up and they begin, their lead begins to slip away. By the fourth quarter, I just almost can't take it because then the other team comes. Anyway, I had some of those thoughts and yet much higher stakes, obviously, with this thing. But what is going to happen in the days ahead? Listen to what else he says: pray without ceasing. You know, before we haven't even gotten to the real meat of the message. I'm just, this is introduction, okay? But it's 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 important for us to understand to lay a foundation. In the weeks and months before the election, there were all kinds of these national, statewide, international prayer meetings, fasting and prayer. And I've wondered to myself, we, we need to watch because are our, our times any less desperate than they were a week ago? Are they? No. Will these things still happen? Will, will people still have these? prayer meetings. And it's like a lot of people that I've known in ministry, I'm thinking one particular guy, he and his wife, a long time ago in another ministry, came in to see me because they were going through a real, real crisis. And as I prayed with them, they said, we we have not been committed to the church like we need to be, and so we're going to get recommitted and all the rest of that. The crisis passed, and after a month or so, didn't see them. Now, they were good people. But, but that's indicative. So, for those of you who still, if there are no more prayer meetings out there, let me remind you. I'm, I'm going to plug a couple of things here. On the first Sunday evening of, of every month, we have a prayer meeting. Usually, you ha- have it in the chapel. I would love to see that thing grow to the point that we have to move in here. Because we still need to pray. It's an hour of prayer. We don't, we don't preach. We just we pray, sing a song at the end because Jonathan leads it. That's good. It's good to worship. And, and then, uh, for, I know no, all of you can't make it. I, I'm not guilting you in to do these things. I'm just saying the desire for, for prayer which was there ought to continue. Pray without ceasing. We meet in my office at uh, 8, 830 every Sunday morning for prayer for what's going on, and particularly for the service. We'd love to have you. And if you can't make it, I know you've got kids to get ready and coffee to drink. and I, I know that there are things that, that cause you not to. So again, I'm, not, I, I'm just saying, folks, let's continue. And, and we're going to have a sermon on praying without ceasing because we need to do that. One more thing as we pray. I'm looking around. I'm not wearing you out with the introduction, am I? We'll try to go quicker when we get to the body. Oh, I've got plenty of time. Boy, I've wondered this. Could we actually be praying against God's will? I'm not saying we are. I'm just saying we we probably ought to at least ask that question. If God is sovereign, if God is in control, which He is, then what looks, please hear this, what looks like disaster may very well be the outworking of His plan to bring the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. How many of you here want Jesus to come again? Okay. Second Thessalonians tells us that there are several things that have to happen. First of all, things have to get worse. There's a time of rebellion that has to come. It's going to be a lot worse, particularly in our Western culture, which we haven't seen a lot of it. Other countries have, as we said last week, our prayer for the persecuted church. So as we pray against that, are are we praying against the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? If we know things like that have to happen? The cross was the single most important event in the New Testament history, in in all of history. And yet, very, very well-intentioned people were speaking and probably praying against it. Remember when Peter came and said, after Jesus said, I've got to go to the cross? That's what's got to happen. Peter said, no, 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 that's not going to happen. And Jesus addressed him, I'm sure gently but firmly, get behind me Satan. Now, when was the last time that you were called Satan? But this is why he said it. And he said two more things. He said, you're a stumbling block to me. This is God's plan. This is the Father's plan. Don't be a stumbling block to the Father's plan. And here was his evaluation of Peter's heart. You're setting your concerns on what concerns man. Humanly speaking, Peter was right. But when you step back and look at the sovereignty of God involved in that event, Peter had it wrong. And haven't, haven't you and I sometimes prayed one thing and then you get past it and way past it and you, like the great theologian, Garth Brooks, you say, thank God for unanswered prayer. I thought I was in love in college, and there was a breakup, and I, oh, Lord, please restore this relationship, and then I met Jan, my wife of almost 47 years, and you don't know how many times I said, thank you, Lord, that you didn't answer those prayers. You knew exactly what I need, but on to other things, okay. Okay. Desperate times call for desperate measures. So, what do you do? Here are two things that Paul says in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, excuse me. Um, First thing is this: okay, desperate times call for desperate measures. First thing, continue in the word. If you're not in the word, get in the word. Continue in the word. And he says that, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, that's the Word, which give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. So you continue in those things that have given you salvation. Second thing, this is not for just guys like me. I I solemnly charge you. Now, Paul is telling Timothy, but by extension, we stay in the Word and we proclaim the Word to those around us. And we can do that when we're asked about certain things like the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of life. And we proclaim, we we gently but firmly say, here is what the Bible teaches and here's the outcome of that. As you pay close attention to yourself and to what you believe you're teaching, you persevere in these things. Look at this, for as you do, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. And that is the ultimate goal. So, that was the introduction. Let's jump into the body of the message. Okay, everybody just take a deep breath because we're really going to hunker down now. Okay, this is some incredibly, incredibly important stuff. So, I'm going to start by look at uh, the, the, the second point on your outline, verses 9b through 10a. Our salvation, we talked about the God's purposes. We just got through talking about that. Our salvation is based on God's provision through the atoning death. Circle those words. Atoning death of Jesus our Lord. Here's the way Paul says it to the church at Thessalonica. Our salvation is through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. All right, because there are big theological words today. By the way, how many theologians do we have in the congregation today? Every one of you ought to raise your hands because if you're a follower of Christ, you are a theologian. You believe something, and what's going to inform what you believe? It's, either going, to be some, it, it's going to be something, either the world, the world system, many different religions and isms, or it's going to be the, the Word of God. So everyone who says, I'm a follower of Christ, needs to be a theologian. So you got your pens ready? Ready to take some, some notes? We're going to define some terms, first of all. Big theological words. Atonement. Atonement. There's another word that's also used. In fact, 1 John 2, 2, and depending on the translation, it's going to use the word atoning sacrifice or the word propitiation. And he himself, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So what is an atonement? An atonement is a blood sacrifice. Old Testament, what was that? Come on, animals. We come to the New Testament, what is that? A blood sacrifice, the blood of Jesus. We just got through singing about that. I'm telling you, Augustus top lady, riding Rock of Ages, he got it right. He nailed it. You may not like the, the tune or whatever, but the theology in that song is absolutely incredible. Blood sacrifice that removes God's wrath from those who believe and reconciles sinners to God. That's the first thing we need. We need to be reconciled not to one another, first of all, but first of all to God. God. So, here, here's a little thing. You've probably seen this before. How can I remember what atonement means? Break it down like this, at one meant It simply means that because of Jesus Christ and what he has done, I've accepted his blood sacrifice that turns away God's wrath from me. I am at-one in my relationship with God. at one meant. Got it? Easy way to remember it, so you don't have to get bogged down in some of the, the, the big definitions, theological terms. So atonement, I love what it says in Leviticus when it's talking about the Passover. You might now just jot this down if you're taking notes. Leviticus 16, 30. And, and here's, we, we preached an entire me- uh, series through the book of Leviticus. And in chapter 16, verse 30, it says, On this day, the day of atonement, shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Wow. That's what the atonement, that's what the death of Christ did for us. Let's look at another definition. Now, by the way, I know I'm going, we've got to go qu- quickly so we don't get out of here by 3 o'clock. Um, so, if always, if you email Mary or, or me, you can get that number off your worship guide. I'll send you my notes, and I'll send you the PowerPoint. And if you don't have PowerPoint on your computer, we'll reduce that to a JPEG file. You understand that, don't you? Okay. So, if if you would like to study this a little bit more, we, we will gladly send that to you. Let's look at another thing, the big theological word, imputation. What does it mean that Christ's sacrifice, His death for us, was imputed to us? It means to take the identity of one person and make it belong to another person. Now, I love some of the biblical illustrations. In fact, Galatians 3.27, 327, if you are in Christ, you are clothed with Christ. Christ and his righteousness is put on you in You see that? So just divide out that word. Circle the word, the letters P-U-T. It means to be put onto. I, I can think Adam and Eve, a good example. They sinned against the Lord. And what did God do? It's a picture of what would come later. What did God do? He killed an animal, blood, and He clothed them. That that was a picture of the atonement to come in Jesus Christ. What about the prodigal son? You don't have to raise your hand, but do we have any prodigal sons or daughters here today, and I don't mean people that just this grew up and became a Christian in church. I'm talking about those who have plumbed the depths of sin, and we are ragged, and we are torn, and we've been eating pig slop. And then we find Jesus, and we come to the Father, and He does not leave us in rags. He says, "Bring the best robe." clothe my son, who is, he was dead, now he's alive. Clothe my son with the best robe and bring the ring of ownership and put it on him. Bring the sandals to cover his dirty feet. That's a picture of imputation. Okay? Got that. Here's another. Several more definitions. These are important before we get into some of the nuances of what we're going to be talking about justified. Here's what it means to make right. We're going to find that we have to have that to make right. And I'm going to give you kind of a lead up from the song we just got through singing, Rock of Ages. We have to have, it's, two, it's a twofold thing. In Romans 9, uh, uh, 5, 9, and 10 talk about this. We have to be saved from wrath and we have to be made pure. And you will not get to heaven unless both of those things happen to you. Imputation, they're put on you because you've been justified and made right, just as if I never sinned, just as if I perfectly kept the law of God in totality. Let's get on to the second question, all right? Do you see it in your notes? There are two parts under this about the atonement of Christ. Why the atonement, is it, is it really as sinful as we think about? Two more terms we're going to define, depravity, okay? Well, let's, let's first define sin. Sin is this, and, and here's why we define it, because there are a lot of people out there this will help you. Well, I'm, I, I know I'm not perfect but I'm I'm not really a sinner. They view big things, big things as sin. We're going to see this, 1 John 3, 4. Sin is transgression of God's law. Either that you've broken it or you haven't kept it, okay? And then here's another word that we throw in here that is so often misapplied and misinterpreted. Depravity doesn't mean that you are as bad as you can be. Sometimes it's, many times it's used that way. Depravity in the Bible simply means that you are totally helpless to save yourself. Romans 5, 6 says, for while we were helpless, Christ died for us. We have no ability to save ourselves. Now, is sin serious? Okay, we, we are a, a conservative Bible teaching group of people, I expect you to say yes. And I expect those of you who don't quite, you're not quite there to give the Sunday school answer, yes, is sin serious, yes. But I can promise you, and it could be for some people in here today, but people outside who are just living their lives as the best they can, they really don't believe that sin is that serious. What's the penalty for sin? Death. death. Let's say it like this, wrath. We go back to last week, wrath. Where is that, where is that going to, to shake out? Death, what do you mean by death? Nobody wants to say it. When my kids were little, uh, they, they, they didn't want to say this word, hell. That, that place down there, they didn't, they didn't want to say it. Are you telling me that an eternity of punishment, of torment, is a just, is a fair punishment for sin? The other place, by the way, is the cross. But people don't like that either. Ah, the cross. Wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. God the Father would punish His innocent Son for me? That's that's cosmic child abuse. Several very popular people have said that. So, so that people have problems. Are hell and the cross overkill for sin? Well, again, the answer is no. Whether you're quite there or not, it's no. L- let me give you a couple of illustrations. I'll give you the verses up here of why. This came from Jim Eliff, all right? I, I love Jim Eliff's teaching. You know the Eliff brothers, they're famous... In Oklahoma, at least, J- JT was his father. He said very very simply three reasons why sin is so serious. The first one is this. You might want to jot this down. Number one is the sheer number of your sins. The number of your sins has to make it serious. All right, let's do, let's do a little math study, all right? If you sin... Ten times a day. Now, remember, this is inward and outward. Lowell laughed because he sends a lot more than ten times a day. Ask Gwen about that. Okay, but if you, tens, if you sin ten times a day for a year, you've sinned 3,650 times. Got any 15-year-olds in here today? Or thereabouts? If you sin for 15 years, 10 sins a day, you've just accumulated 54,750 sins. And if you live to be an old coot like me, 70 years times 3,650 is, I've accumulated. Now, by the way, I, I really do sin more than 10 times a day. I know that's hard for you to believe. It's hard for my wife to believe. <laughs> Not. But just, just 10 times a day, I've sinned 255,500 times. How much is a sin worth? Somebody said it a minute ago. How much is one sin worth? Death. How many sins did Adam? commit to receive the penalty of death and bring a curse on the world the cosmos There's a little chorus if that was converted I, I was thinking of this if that was converted to money think about this you 15 year olds you've got think if that was money And you got to 15 without doing anything. You had a debt, a a financial debt of 54, almost $55,000. You wouldn't like that, would you? How how are you going to pay that? My parents. No, no. (laughs) You can't go there. And I think of the little song. Some of you know that. I owed a debt I could not pay. So that's the first thing. You, you should see it. The sheer number of your sins. You got a lot. Second thing, and this is what makes it really big you have sinned against an ultimately. Oh, let me, let me show you that verse. We just said it. Romans 6 23. Second thing is this you have sinned against an infinitely holy God. We. And I think we have a hard time, even Christians, seeing this. I said we had sovereignty amnesia. Sometimes I think we have God's glory amnesia. We simply don't see God as we ought to see. Let me see if I have my worship guide up up here. I don't. But look at Piper's look at Piper's quote. Look at Piper's quote. It's really good. Basically, what he is saying. Oh, here it is, right here. And This is so true. Where God is small and man is big, hell will be abhorrent. How dare you? You can't believe in an eternal hell. You, ju- you know from that person's statement that man is bigger than God. God is not very big in that person's mind, but he is. Indeed, absurd. And the cross will be foolishness. Essentially, saying what we have said before, we have to remember there are levels of sin and punishment. For for example, it's one thing to obey your mom, disobey, excuse me, your mom. It's another thing to disobey a judge. You can go to jail for that. It's one thing to turn in your paper late. Why are you smiling? (laughs) It's another thing to murder the president. The old catechism says God is the first and the best of beings. And every sin, please please hear this, according to the word of God, every sin is high treason against God. David, David knew this. He had a very high view of God. And, and I've, I've heard people say, how, how could David say this when he sinned against Bathsheba and, and he, he, was, he this was, this was basically abuse. He, he committed adultery with her and then had her husband Uriah killed. Didn't he sin against them? But ultimately, yes, he did. The answer is yes. But ultimately, he saw his sin. And, and young people and children, you need to get this. Every sin that you do is ultimately and first of all a high handed sin of treason against God because He is so holy against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. So, the sheer number of your sins that makes sin bad. You have sinned against an infinitely holy God that makes sin bad. But, but let me put it like this, and Jim Eliff does, and I love this, you have sinned against God's greatest act of love. You have sinned against God's greatest act of love. What was that? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And, and what about for those who sin against, who reject that? the greatest act of love. He continues on in in, in the same chapter, in the last verse, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who rejects, who does not obey the Son, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Let's go on to the next part, the last part, the atonement. I've got some words there you may not understand. I'm going to try my best to explain them because they are so incredibly important. The atonement, the passive and active obedience of Christ on our behalf. You see, God's wrath and His love, both a part of His character, we saw that last week, intersect at the cross. What happened at the cross? And I think it's so important that we we understand some of these words that we just defined and see what it means. The essence of the biblical gospel is found in that statement that the Lord Jesus Christ died for us, the atonement. Question, what are the requirements for eternal life? What must you do to be saved? There was a young man that came to Jesus, and he asked the same question. Uh, Jesus knew his heart, and he had compassion. So he nailed him in love, okay? Someone, a rich young ruler, he's called another place. By the way, some of you may have studied this, and there are a lot of people who believe this was Saul before he was saved. Came to Jesus, sincere, sincere. And he said, what? Now watch this. What good thing shall I do that I may obtain, that's the exact word that Paul uses here, eternal life or salvation. So Jesus knew he had to convince him of two different things. You see this young man who was very sincere, he came to Jesus and he already had the answer. Have you ever done that? You ask have you ever done that you you ask a question but you already have the answer and basically what you're doing is you're asking so that you, what you want is an affirmation of what you think inside does that make sense? That's why the, the, the man came to him and asked this question. What good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Now, watch, watch what Jesus does because he lovingly again nails him. He first deals with the reality that this young man apparently didn't see. He sets, he sets a standard for goodness. Why do you call me good? There is one that's good, God. Now, don't get tangled up. He's, Jesus is God. But he basically says, you've got the wrong standard. You're comparing yourself to yourself. What you need to be doing in what you think is good is comparing yourself to God. And when you compare yourself to God, you fail miserably. You are a sinner. And, so, and we're going to see this in a minute. You need some help. With your sin debt, you've loaded up your sins because you've broken God's commands. But then there's something else. It's the other side. We said it a minute ago. Save from wrath and make me pure. But if you wish to enter, this is shocking almost. How can you have eternal life? All you got to do is never sin, never break God's law, and always keep his commandments. You say that's, that's the same. No, it's not really. If you wish to enter eternal life, keep the commands. If you read the story very carefully, then Jesus comes back and he basically shows this young man that he has made an idol of his wealth and he needs to turn away from that and turn to Jesus and follow him. And the young man left, leaving the most important gift of salvation that he could ever have. His problem was the same problem that we all have, depravity. What's the definition of depravity? Give me one word. What is it? Helplessness, Romans 5, 6. While we were helpless, while we were helpless, Christ died. This young man was helpless and hopeless, and he didn't even realize it until Jesus confronted Him. In other words, again, let me say it again, don't ever do bad things, don't ever sin, don't ever break God's laws, and then, because it's a two-fold solution, always keep perfectly the laws of God. That's what Jesus did. So, both the death and the life of Jesus, just as if I'd never sinned, just as if I'd always kept perfectly the commands of the Father, that's what's needed for salvation. Now, theologians, how many theologians we got here? Okay. I saw more hands that time. How many? Okay. Okay. Theologians refer to this as the passive and active obedience of Christ. Let me just break it down. You don't don't need to remember that unless you want to. But Christ did two things when he died on the cross. He died for your sins. He was the atoning sacrifice to turn away the wrath of God. Hebrews is all over this. When Jesus came into the world, he says, and he's referring back to the Old Testament sacrifices in chapter 9, he says, God, Father, you, you don't desire the blood of goats and bulls because they, can't, they can never remove sin. But here's what you've done. You've prepared a body for me. And so I'm never going to sin, and I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to provide the atoning sacrifice in my blood. That song a minute ago, I owed a debt I could not pay. What is the next line? He paid a debt he did not owe. Or is it the other way around? All I know is it goes on to say, I needed someone to wash my sins away. We have to be sinless. We aren't. So his sinless life is, here's the word, imputed. Look at your definition. What does that mean? His sinless life is put onto us. And in the Father's sight, if you have received Christ, He looks at you. If you have received Christ, you're clothed with Christ, He sees you right now as sinless because of what Jesus has done. But, Here's something. I I tried to create these diagrams. Maybe they'll help you. I asked the question, how do you get to heaven? How do you have eternal life? I've just talked about the first part. See the line? It's brought you up to the state of Adam in the garden before he sinned. Okay? At that point, he was sinless. And this is where I think a lot of Christians don't really see all that God has done for 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 you and for me, our identity in Christ. In other words, all you've got to do to get to heaven is don't disobey God. You have to be sinless. But we know we have. So Christ paid our sin debt, and we are just as if I We're justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Will that get you to heaven? No. That only gets you to zero to neutral. A stone, a rock, is sinless. A frog is sinless. It takes something more than that. It takes the righteousness of Christ. Christ, and this is where imputation put onto you, not only the death of Christ, to clothe you, to forgive you, to turn away the wrath of God. But also, it has been put onto you the total righteousness of Christ. Christ, from the time He was born to the time He died, always perfectly kept God's law. Motive, heart, action, all of that. He said, behold, I have come to do your will, and he did. See the rich young ruler, we were talking about him a minute ago, not only sinned, he couldn't keep God's law, couldn't get to heaven on his own. You have to keep God's law perfectly, and what's the problem with that? Even if you've had all of your sins forgiven, you've got to live perfectly to get into heaven. What's the problem? You can't. What's the theological word for that? Depravity. We're we're helpless to do that. So look at what God has done. You go from zero. you, You have to be over there on the left, always obey God. In other words, you have to be perfect. You can't, you won't, because you're fallen, total depravity, But Christ's perfect life is put, imputed, put on you so that when God looks at you, when the Father looks at you, he sees you as just as if I'd, as justified, just as if I'd not only not sinned on the left, but as if I had perfectly kept the law on the right, on the top. Let me take a deep breath. Does that make sense? And and please, if there's a little bit of fuzz in there, I, I hope that you will ask questions about that. Do you see that you have to have your sin debt erased? But do you see also what Christ has done in giving you his righteousness? Okay, the debt is erased, but you have the full inheritance of Christ that has been given to you. When Christ sees you, he sees you not only as sinless, but also as perfectly pleasing in his sight because you have kept the law. Imagine, it's hard to imagine, you're standing before a judge and you're you're a serial killer. That's S-E-R-I-A-L. You're a Hitler. You've murdered millions. By the way, if that seems a little bit far-fetched, Jesus redefined murder as calling someone an idiot. I would say there are a lot of people in this congregation who've murdered quite a few times. The judge sentences you, death. This isn't a human illustration. It's going to break down. But all of a sudden, the judge does something that is so totally incredible. He brings in his son, and he says, you're sentenced to death, but I'm going to give my son to stand in your place. He's going to be sent to the electric chair rather than you. You can go free. You say, wow, but hold on. Now, that's the illustration that we've always used for salvation that's only half of the salvation that Christ gave to you. He says, no, 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 you're free, but I want to take you into my home. I want to adopt you as my son and love you and give you the inheritance that was my son's. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Father, it's my prayer today that this message, oh, it's been long, I know, and a uh, lot, a lot of stuff in it, but I pray that the meat, the heart would have gotten through that what you have done, the twofold salvation. Going to the cross, living your righteous life, it's all been imputed. It's been put on us. We've been clothed with that so that we can experience the atonement, being at one with you, the removal of your wrath, and the approval of us as perfect. God, help us to see that our justification will never come through anything that we do, not joining a church, trying to be good, joining a, a, a social organization but it'll come through the righteousness of Christ. So thank you, Lord, for that. And I pray that if there's anyone here who has never stepped into that, that person has realized his or her sins today before you, a holy God, he will repent and turn away and embrace Jesus Christ, the one who died and who lived and who lives for us even today. Thank you, Lord. Help us to celebrate this, not only with our song that we will sing in closing, but in the coming week.